0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines.
1: My left eye sees pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar to steam drill baby drill predefined missile polarized division shuttered mind, worse than blind twenty twenty vision How's your Thanksgiving Dave? Good I have had my uh a crown put on one of my teeth uh <laughs>
0: If you can still say it after having the crown put on.
1: I had, yeah. So, uh, uh, but it was cleared up before before Thanksgiving, which was my, my great fear. Yeah. I, I don't know how or why I thought it might be a good idea to schedule a dentist appointment the the day before Thanksgiving. Risky. But uh, yeah, it knocked out our show though, because I was there for five hours. <laughs> so it was, had had a reverberative effect upon everything. So,
0: yeah, well, while you were doing that, we were having the longest drive ever from New York to, to Harrisburg, uh, a little bit because of traffic, although that wasn't the major cause, but we, we stopped, we thought for a, a quick bite to eat at Cracker Barrel, which is our, our go-to place. And it took an hour for the food to be prepared. And we we were trying to call in advance and their website wasn't working. We finally got there. We put the order in right away. And it took an hour before we finally got out of the parking lot. So anyway, I, I would say uh, your day was more painful than, than ours, but <laughs> our, our travel wasn't without its challenges. Once, once we got there, though, we had a great time with our parents, really enjoyed that. My Aunt Susie as well. So that was, that was a good time. Nice to be back to the, the Thanksgiving routine um, after you know so many things not being routine for the last year and a half.
1: That would be a good challenge. What is worse, East Coast traffic the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or the dentist's office? Yeah, make your make your pick. It's uh, both are probably somewhere in some circle of Dante's hell. <laughs> right. yeah. either uh,
0: what you're looking to do, right? If you don't have to, but um, I I still think, you know, with all the frustrations we faced, I, I would rather have done that than what you were going through. So yes, I
1: I think I, I think I agree with that. So Patriots. Aristotle, uh, Book Four, Part Three, uh, continuation of this discussion of forms of government, and I think the key to remember here once again is that. Aristotle wants to take a more uh, deliberate approach uh, to studying regimes, and and he wants to train his reader to open their eyes or have better eyesight with regard to the complexity that goes into uh, one nation or one city uh, or one political community being different uh, from another. So he really picks up with this theme again uh, as he gets into uh, part three uh, of book four, He says that the reason why there are many forms of government is that every state contains many elements. In the first place, we see that all states are made up of families, and in the multitude of citizens, there must be some rich and some poor and some in the middle condition. Uh, The rich are heavy armed and the poor are not. And from there on, he'll talk about how the common people are different from one another. Some are husbandmen, and some are traders, and some are artisans. And then even among the wealthy, uh, there are wealthy people who keep horses and, and can afford to, and those uh, who cannot. So uh, the the trained political eye in trying to assess why a constitution is the way it is and why offices are organized the way they are, has to take a look at these varieties that, that define any community. Politics is a complex topic uh, because of the a diversity of types. God didn't make us uh, as replicants to one another. Uh, we're not um, we're not equal to one another in every aspect, every part of our lives, every thing that we do. Um, there is there's difference, and that difference uh, makes a big difference in in our world.
0: Well, I think there's a couple of different levels we can look at on this. You know, one of the things that seems to be a, a regular trope on the the TV debates, is, you know, why isn't America more like Country X? And it's usually like Europe collectively, and there's not a lot of nuance because if you actually look at Europe, Europe is quite complex. You know, there's there's no actual monolithic Europe on any issue. But we maybe think that way because we look at it from such a distance and we notice differences there from, from America. But you know, one of the things that we've been trained on through our study of of the Tocqueville and now with Aristotle is to see: well, actually, there's there are some important historical differences, cultural differences, you know, you talk about the, the language of mores that uh, is so central to de Tocqueville's analysis. I think Aristotle is very helpful here because we can think about democracy as a, as a single approach to politics. But again, once we get in any kind of serious study of, of different countries where democracy has been established, we can see there are lots of differences that, that are significant, different kinds of democracy. and 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 those are all or almost all rooted in, in deep historical and, and cultural norms, uh, some of which we really can't even perhaps discover the origins of at this point, but, but which nevertheless have a profound influence on how people experience politics within that big umbrella of democracy. And I think Aristotle is very helpful in this chapter in pointing us in that direction, because we do the same thing within our country. Right, we can talk about the variety within our country and and the regional differences and the economic differences and the ideological differences, and think about how all that how that influences democracy in New York State from democracy in Texas and democracy in in California and Alaska, etc.
1: I think what Aristotle is suggesting to us just in, in presenting the topic the way that he does is that variance is good, that 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 difference is good because if your coverage of politics is just reduced to, there are rich people and there are poor people, then you're more likely to have a battle between those who are labeled rich and those who are labeled poor. So the simplification of politics to, here's a group of haves, and here's a group of have nots, and this is unjust, and we have to overcome this injustice, will tend to a war between uh, those two groups. And it's I think it's prophetic also because when you take a look at uh, more modern um, uh, dissent movements within the West, you think primarily here of of Marx, uh, Marx is uh, suggesting, right, that all politics can be reduced, right, to those who control the mode of production and those who don't. And then what is necessary? Well, a revolution is necessary. Um, over um, the bourgeois uh, that will produce a, a great and final state of affair where there'll be no haves and no have not. So uh, Marx's uh, hope right, is to move to a complete homogeneity. And that's a lot of what drives uh, modern I- ideology of all different sorts. This, d- this desire to get rid of difference, um, get rid of variance and create just one type which always happens to be how I'd like things done. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and of course, you know, if, if you were to accomplish that, then I guess all the, 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 the challenges and conflicts by definition disappear. But since we have no expectation of actually being able to accomplish that, there's a whole lot of conflict that comes along in the effort to do away with those differences. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, Madison could have learned from Aristotle in his, in his uh, preparations and thinking about faction in Federalist Ten and other, other places, that, that the more variety you have, the more moderate the regime tends to be. And so the, you know, the, the solution for Aristotle, whenever you have a, an imperfect regime, is not more of that regime, it's, it's balancing it with some elements of, of other imperfect regimes so that you create a more moderate mixture Rather than a purer form of a regime that's not actually seeking the common good, and so just like you're saying, you know, the the economic variety and the other forms of variety that we observe are, are are good things that tend to make it more difficult for anyone to absolutize their claims. And even if you would create a kind of one size fits all pattern for the world in your own image, you're very unlikely to be able to do that if we maintain the kind of diversity that we have in, in thinking and economic interests and the rest. Well, and then if you
1: bring it up to the present day political situation in the United States, I think that if it, it, you were to look at what Aristotle is after here, right, that, that balancing that comes by having that diversity and that, that difference and, and even Madison's hope, right. In federalist 10, that because we, um, Enlarge the orbit of our politics, Uh, because we um, we have a a larger republic. They'll be less; it'll be less likely uh, to be a divisive uh, republic, as has undone uh, many republics uh, in the past. But when you look at American politics in the year 2021, we seem to have these touchstone movements uh, or or issues that always seem to spark this division between group a and group B and you don't have to look that far and look, look at what we've dealt with the last 18 or 20 months with, with COVID, right. That it's a very um, divisive subject, and you can pretty much line people up on one side or another ideologically on the issue, right. That, that there are very few people who um, have, have been able to escape, right. Being drawn in right to a, a more, um, Ferocious uh, assessment uh, of the issue, um, and and we had a very you know nice family who had moved out uh, from California to Texas, uh, moved to Tyler, Texas, where, where Rachel's from, and um, and they were very much against you know vaccines, and yeah, it, it dominated the conversation. I, mean, I think I think three of the four hours they were there was vaccine talk, and as if you know there's not anything else other to talk about than vaccines. Right. But I imagine that that. Was probably the conversation of a lot of uh, tables uh, this Thanksgiving, and uh, it's it. it it's, I think it speaks to a kind of a dangerous new trend, right? If we let ideology overcome our minds, everything we see, uh, then we're gonna we're gonna tend toward these groupings that that might um, on every issue want to challenge one another.
0: Yeah, one of the really interesting insights on party that you have in, in the Federalist Federalist 50, uh, one of the less well known Federalist essays in the series dealing with the separation of powers, but, but Madison's analyzing the debates that happened in a Pennsylvania legislature that was reviewing a report that was, according to the Constitution, supposed to be produced every seven years to see how the government was actually following the Constitution. Very interesting thing. It'd be, it'd be fun to do this every seven years, right? Yeah. Do an audit. Um, and you know, did the executive branch break the Constitution? If so, how? Did the legislative branch break the Constitution? If so, how? And, and what we found, you know, in, as you analyzed this report, was that you had these parties that would emerge. And, and the way that you saw it was party was that people on, on issues that were entirely distinct were yet voting the same way. Right. So, so there was something about pre existing attachment to this person or this group or, or dislike for that group. That was getting in the way of any kind of rational analysis of the questions. Because you know, if you have different questions that, that really require different kinds of analysis, and yet people are always lining up the exact same way, then it's probably not careful analysis that's determining the vote, mm-hmm. right? It's some pre-existing passion or attachment that's guiding you. Why would you always reach the same conclusion as this person on questions that are fundamentally distinct? unless uh, there was something more going on than just kind of a clear-sighted analysis of it. So this is where we are. I mean, this is our politics through and through. We have our teams and we root for our teams, passionately root for our teams. We engage in the conflicts of our teams. We often hypocritically criticize the other team for doing the same thing that our team does, but you know we don't see it when it's our team doing it or we read it a different way, interpret it a different way. And so just like you're saying, like an issue... Uh, COVID doesn't really have to be uh, a, a matter of, of partisan divide. There's obviously going to be policy questions that will be political and, and those may fall along pre-existing patterns, but, but there's certain elements of it that, that just shouldn't be immediately political or ideological anyway. And, and yet we find that our, our divisions are so deep that, that we sort out very quickly, right? According to those pre-existing lines of, of
1: demarcation and you begin to wonder when you look back through history whether or not it's just is this going to be the just the way of human affairs you have jew and gentile you have you know christian and pagan Uh, you have protestant and catholic right i mean there were these breakdowns right all all along the way so the modern hope right and the modern republican hope at least in in the united states that you could have a diversity of types uh, may be overcome you know by this continual historical repetition you know to to want to view yourself as being on a certain team and have a clear view as as to who the enemy is right there's friends and there's enemy and then I'm, and that's that's it and and it i think it's even uh, you know a, a deeper question uh, for those in the body of christ uh, because which team are you on are you, is your team the red team or the blue team uh, or do you identify with christ right and and, and is, right. is is your identity there central i think that's hard it's been very hard for a lot of christians right to to identify with christ rather than identify with red or with blue
0: yeah and you think about the you know the teaching in in uh, romans and corinthians on on how you ought to accommodate the weaker brother right so you might be quite convinced that this Position you've taken uh, on vaccines or masks or whatever the, the COVID-related issue is, is is absolutely right. Uh, and yet, are you are you able to accommodate the weaker brother on this point? Right? Are, are you able to um, view somebody who's who's come to a different conclusion and, and who you know you may think is is misguided in that conclusion, and nevertheless have that brotherly care for them that makes you willing you know, as Paul did and, and, and notes in a number of places in his writings, to, to give up your rights. You, 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 could, you could claim your right to X, Y, or Z, but you can also give up your rights, right? This is one of the, the things that Christians need to learn, uh, that, that rights actually aren't unalienable. <laughs> you know, it's one of the mistakes um, in the Declaration of Independence to say that our rights are unalienable, which means we can't give them up, right? That means that, if that's true, that means that your, 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 your chief end is to vindicate your rights, uh, and that's a mistake, right? It's it's not the highest human purpose to vindicate your rights. Of course, you have rights that ought to be respected. Governments have a, a duty to protect those rights. Others have a duty to respect those rights, but you can give up your rights. Christ gave up his rights. Paul gave up his rights and, and did so for a higher purpose. And, and so that's something that Christians, I think, especially American Christians, have to really learn mm-hmm. that it's okay to give up your rights and it's okay to, to set aside a, a privilege that may be rightfully yours for the sake of caring for that weaker brother, for that, 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 that weaker sister who, who needs to see something more than your invocation of rights or law as, as you interact around the issue of COVID or any number of other questions that can easily divide churches and Christians.
1: And it's hard. It's hard to to do, and I think it's it's harder to do, right? Because I think that a clear sighted view of the political situation, and you get this from even non Christians like Tocqueville, is that the the major modern development is the is this creation of a mortal god, of an um, earthly leviathan uh, that is assuming a great amount of power and wants to assume a great amount of administrative power, uh, over the lives of all. Uh, and that uh, is really aiming to supplant God, uh, and God's authority. So this is a, it's a, it's a very clear and present danger, right? The growth of this, this mortal, um, God, this growth of this Leviathan, but then how, um, you know, how, how do you act uh, the part of, of, of maintaining your identity in Christ and, and, and realizing that, okay, it'd be wonderful to have a victory over that Leviathan, but that's not the true victory, right? The true victory that has that is, is already been won by Christ, and, and that's, um, that's the community that I'm going to be part of. That's, that's going to be the victory that produces uh, the eternal peace, you know, not, not just simply beating back the Leviathan, even though beating back the Leviathan is a good thing.
0: Right, that's right. So how how invested are you in that and how willing, and this is, I think, one of the real challenges on, on the right today, how willing are you to use any means necessary in order to secure that victory, right? Are, are you willing, are, are you choosing to gain the whole world uh, while you lose your soul? No. And of course, you're not going to gain the whole world, right? You, you, might, you might gain a, a momentary victory over um, the ruling class, the, the deep state, the whatever you want to call the, the, the opponent in all this. right? But, but it will be a temporary victory. And this is one of the, the great mistakes often made in, in American political analysis is to assume that every victory is some kind of final victory. You know, it, it's embarrassing the number of books that are written every four years after a party wins a presidential election and does well in the congressional election. So well, that's because of some demographic trend that will certainly last forever. Right? You will never have a Republican president again, or Democrats uh, have have lost it forever because they've they've lost the suburbs or they're winning the suburbs and now they're going to win forever. And you know we have this kind of breathless analysis every four years, even every two years sometimes after a midterm election. And you know wait two more years and the analysis will be in an entirely different direction and someone else will have figured out some other law. Of politics that's, that's certain to guarantee this party's victory forever. Um, and, and so you, know, you come back to Aristotle and, and other wise observers and you see, no, actually these, these human things are, are pretty resilient, this, this kind of variety and, and division. You think back to the debates early on in American political history uh, between uh, the Jeffersonian vision for an agrarian society, versus Hamiltonian vision to to buttress a manufacturing society along with that. And Hamilton wanting a more diverse economy and Jefferson worried about the influence of, of industry on the independence of the worker. And you know, interesting debate. You can review the arguments on both sides, but but you can see the you know these these competing visions. And then even at that early stage, the beginnings, because Hamilton wins in some ways this debate, of a diversifying economy that that produces the kind of variety that that seems only to have multiplied rapidly in the years since. I mean, how many different industries and, and divisions within industries do we now have in the American economy?
1: Yeah, and I I mean, another, I mean, I'd probably like a final point on this is you, you wonder, not a final point, but I think a final thought on this, you wonder whether or not geography... Uh, is enough of an alleviating force uh, on, on this debate. I mean, that was the hope, right, of Madison, right, that, that our um, unique geography, the fact that we would extend over the course of a continent, uh, would allow for those differences. Um, will, it, will it have the same effect in the 21st century? When, yes, geographically, we may be far from one another, but um, if the, the winds of division can spread quickly, uh, over the internet, um, over the, uh, the screen or whatever you see, then, uh, there, there may not be an escape, uh, from this division you, unless you just, you turn the technology off. Um, you, you make a really great effort, um, to, to focus on, on trying to live a, a godly existence, uh, in community, uh, with others. Uh, I just don't, I, I don't, I think there are many people are kind of searching for the answer to that question. Okay. Well, where's, where's the escape from this madness? And, and um, so I don't know. I, you have the answer, Matt.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just give me five minutes. So I can lay that out for you. <laughs> sure. Okay. No, I don't. But I think everyone recognizes, like you're saying that there's, there's problems. And, and a lot of those problems are connected with, with social media, with kind of immediacy of information, with the way that that, that influences our, our emotions, our, our patterns of thought. You know, just this just one thought about this. You know, what if what if we all tried to spend as much time reading a book, like a real book, <laughs> as as we do scrolling through things online, right? More 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 time with the permanent things, or at least with the things with a long track record behind them, right? Read an old book. A book that's been around for a hundred years, or five hundred years, or 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 the scriptures of two thousand years and three thousand years, and 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 you know, allow yourself to have the perspective that comes from that, rather than the latest Twitter outrage or the thing that's on the you know, like the, the news is is so crazy that you've got the story that they're actually presenting. But then they have to have the thing running across the bottom, right? Because well, there's even even more important that's happening just this moment, while we're talking about something else. Don't forget about this. So we have to back off from that, and and those those momentary trivialities that are so influential, even in just setting our our you know the course of our day, right? How do you feel getting up? Well, what's the first headline you read, and how does that influence you, and and get some perspective on on things. That can come from you know, unplugging a little bit and, and, and reading things that, that aren't so transient in their nature.
1: I always say when I, I cover Aristotle that what he's trying to perform here is, is almost like a, what, um, what an eye doctor does. He's trying to correct our, our sight lines. Mm-hmm. And just in, in thinking through these last kind of, is there a way around this? Well, we have to have our sight lines corrected, right? The, the, what are we looking at? You know, are, are we clicking, scrolling, or are we reading? Um, are we um, clicking, scrolling, or are we doing things with, with one another? Uh, so right. uh, we, need a, uh, we need some eye surgery today. Uh, yeah, uh, And probably the best eye surgery is to put down the thing that you're always uh, trained to look to um, every moment.
0: All right. Well, we wrap up the show this week with the grade book. And uh, so we want to, you know, go back, of course, one of the great traditions around Thanksgiving, the weekend surrounding, there's a lot of the college football rivalry games. And uh, I know you had a interesting time. I'm sure Dave watching uh, Alabama Auburn, Uh, a little bit of tension there, but uh, it came out the way you wanted in the end. It's great. That was a Uh, great
1: game. Yeah. I, I just, uh, actually I, I enjoy the way they do overtime it's a little bit strange right because you had a game <laughs> yeah. like that where there were 10 points basically scored right up through you know near the end of the fourth quarter and then all yeah. of a sudden you have a outcome that's you know 24 to 22 because they're they're lining up and and putting uh, put well, them put in the 25 yard line or something like that and kind of let them go from there so
0: yeah and then they do two point conversions after the second overtime which is a new innovation but that that's interesting too so you just get this kind of rapid, score no score and you get some weird numbers on the scores because you're going up by two which is not the normal (laughs) football way of doing things so yeah what we're going to do though is 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 look at some of the prizes that come out of those rivalry games and and grade those so you know there's a million of these some are more obscure some are better known but we've got a selection of four of them and just want your grade dave on on the prize itself and eh, that can be related to the you know the significance of the game however you want to weigh those things but we're going to start with one of the few college football games that's played on Thanksgiving day. Of course, NFL usually is the major football story on, on Thanksgiving, but, but the egg bowl between Ole Miss and Mississippi state played annually on, on Thanksgiving day. Uh, this year, both teams were ranked in the top 25. Uh, Ole Miss who was 12, uh, won over the 25th ranked Mississippi state 31, um, 21. And as a result,
1: they get a golden egg trophy. How about that one, Dave? Golden egg. Um, Pretty good. I'm going to give that a, uh, a B minus. I mean, I, <laughs> it's not, it's. let's give it a B minus. I don't know really what to, you know, a golden egg. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, it actually we were talking earlier about, about our tendency to divide, right? And brought to mind SWIFT. And uh, the little right? And do you break the the small end of the egg or the big end of the egg? So exactly. you kind of wonder how that works with the golden egg trophy. Can you flip it upside down, or you know, what's what's the proper orientation for that? So I think I'm going to give them credit for a a, a a deep literary reference there, and and give them a B. Um, not not the greatest of all trophies, but I, I kind of appreciate the the sly humor in it. Um, and whether there's any real connection between Mississippian eggs, I don't know. But, but, I, but I like the fact that they're not afraid to call it the Egg Bowl.
1: Well, that's a Southern literary tradition, right? I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. The Southern agrarians. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right.
0: All right. So now let's let's move to some games that were played on Saturday. So we've already talked about Auburn, Alabama, and the Iron Bowl. And of course, you hear that, you think, wow, that must be a really cool trophy, right? Like some big hunk of iron that's passed back and forth. You can barely lift it, get some of those like massive outlaw trophy-winning linemen, and 3 of them together have to lift this thing up and they pass back and forth you know all the great NFL players that have come out of those those two programs but actually the trophy they play for is called the James E. Foy ODK Sportsmanship Trophy so i don't know if you knew that dave but as an alabama fan right this is this should be something that's that's part of you know your knowledge of, of the rivalry what what do you make of that trophy as as the the, the spoils that goes to the victor of the iron bowl.
1: I just have to grade myself here. Cause I I, <laughs> I give myself an absolute fail. I didn't know about the James E. Foy ODK. I have to now look at this, you know, trophy kind of marvel yeah. at it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, i am you know, I I've got some homework to do.
0: Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I, I looked this one up because I thought iron bowl has got to be the coolest trophy around. And, and then who knew, right. And it's a sportsmanship trophy, which, which, Speaking of sly jokes, (laughs) two programs that play to win. I think it's fair to say Um, I'm sure they don't mind a little sportsmanship, but, but they're not known for that. I don't think it's fair to say. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to give them a, a C for trying on that, but I don't think I can give much more than that for uh, the James E. Foy ODK sportsmanship trophy. All right. Now another well-known one, maybe not, well-known teams in terms of their historic significance in college football but we've got the matchup between minnesota and wisconsin where they play at least now for paul bunyan's axe now interestingly enough until 1943 the winner the winning trophy was called the slab of bacon Um, but then it disappeared when wisconsin lost the game was supposed to give it to minnesota I don't know. They, this, they ate the bacon or they just didn't want to turn or whatever happened. So for five years, there was no trophy. And then they came back with Paul Bunyan's ax and that's what it's been ever since.
1: It's pretty hard to top a slab of bacon as, right. as, a, as an award. I mean, that's like an A plus plus. Yeah. But I think an ax is a, is a pretty good, pretty good award. I'm, I gotta get the ax and the a, I think that just, you know, I, I think that that's a, a great thing to be able to have that axe in your house for that year if you've won. So, yeah, we need we need more thing like a sword, axe, you name it, that right. type of thing. I, I think that that does it for me.
0: Yeah, and and to tie into a you know a classic American tall tale as well, it kind of suits the region, Wisconsin, Minnesota. You know the lumberjack. You know I think it 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 does what this this would be like an A plus if Minnesota and Wisconsin were a better rivalry, (laughs) right. But um, you know, it's definitely an A right. There's, there's no doubt. The trophy is worthy. May the teams be worthy moving forward. All right. Last one, which is actually yet to be awarded. The only three-way trophy competition that I know of the commander in chief trophy contested annually between army Navy and air force. And of course the, the final culminating game, of that series is always the army navy game this year being played on december 11th big pageantry all the excitement of course my my dad having gone to the naval academy this has been a big part of our family college football story what do you think of the commander-in-chief's trophy dave
1: i like it i like the three-way too i mean i think that uh it's interesting what, what happens when they each win a game how do they figure out the tie
0: yeah so it's the 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 holder keeps it basically, so that's got it. Um, okay. So that that that's that's I think the downside of it, honestly, is is that you know you would like at the end of Army Navy to be able to give that trophy out or know who's got it, and of course Air Force may have already won it by that point, and then also some years, you know, there's kind of the ambiguity because you have a three-way one-one and one. So if Navy wins this year, that's what we'll have will be a, a three-way one-one and one.
1: I want, I want point differential then added to that. So, okay. <laughs> you know, the total points if it's one, one, and one. Get know. a good tiebreaker. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So that, you know,
0: yeah. Navy
1: won it and they had to win by like 42 points and they're really just right. trying to run it up.
0: <laughs> yeah, that could be fun.
1: Might increase the rival, rivalry as well. So yeah, I'll give that a solid B. It's no, it's no axe, no slab of bacon, but it's, it's good. It's good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know the, it's an interesting and and fun tradition sometimes when the the president attends the game Army Navy game um, at halftime the president switches sides so sits with the one side for the first half switches there's kind of a ceremony that goes along with that so I mean there, there's nothing like in my mind the Army Navy game as as the you know single greatest college football game with all the all the show that goes around that and 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 all just the ceremony and, and the rest um, but the, the trophy to me is, is a little bit weakened by the fact that we have the kind of air force side carriage you know (laughs) i'd like there to be some kind of army navy thing that was settled on the field every year by them sorry president gibson of the king's college (laughs) but um you know the air force is kind of tacked on to the rivalry it's just not quite the same thing as it would be if it were just army
1: navy i think could we add in like a, another brand, maybe Coast Guard or something like that? or
0: Let, let Coast Guard and Air Force fight it out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, all right. There you go. It's problem right. solved.
0: Problem solved. <laughs> well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening and joining us. And we look forward to talking to you again soon.